Hi everyone, welcome back to the second episode of season two of What? Like It's Hard. As always, my name is Govar and I am your host. I'm a second year history and international relations student who is an aspiring journalist and I love a lot of areas in politics, whether that is the US presidential elections or the rise of populism. But there is something inherently fascinating about women in politics. In this episode, I will use examples of female politicians who have faced an expensive price for political failure. My goal is to explore obstacles faced by women in politics and its impact on their careers. In this context, failure is about the narratives crafted by the media and their opponents. It does not mean female politicians fail to deliver on their promises more than their male counterparts. It simply refers to the idea that women get fewer chances to succeed or reinvent themselves without facing high levels of criticism. They are scrutinized from head to toe. Whether it is about their love lives or their clothing, it is hard for women to be free from societal expectations. The first example I wanna draw on is Hillary Clinton. She is the first person that pops into my head. As is well known, Clinton came very close to winning the US presidential election in 2016. Now, it was important for a myriad of reasons. Clinton was the first woman to get the official party nomination from the Democrats or Republicans, and it created lots of pressure for her to succeed and to follow her husband, former President Bill Clinton. Being in the White House, albeit in a different capacity, is a double-edged sword. You have the recognition and fame in your hands, but you cannot start afresh. How could one forget about her husband denying and then admitting a sexual affair with Monica Lewinsky? How could one ignore her response to the entire situation? How could the public forget the years-long controversy about her emails and the allegation they contained private information that was not well protected by the server? Her long career in politics was both an asset and a weakness. It opened her up to more criticism and allowed Trump to do what he did best, cherry-pick examples, make them into catchy one-liners, and ruin the reputation of his enemy. But it was not Trump alone who did the damage. It is important to remember that Clinton had already lost the nomination from the Democrats in 2008. Obama ended up being president until 2016. Clinton acted as Secretary of State, though, in the first term of his presidency. For a man, all of these experiences would seem like a natural prelude to running for the highest office. In her case, it kind of complicated things further. So 65.8 million Americans voted for Clinton, more than the amount for Trump. She lost thanks to electoral college votes, a system which has faced its fair share of controversy. One thinks of Bush and Al Gore in the 2000 presidential election. That is a significant amount of people who voted for Clinton. Either they were supporting her policies, supporting the Democrats, wanted a female president, or simply did not want Trump. But Clinton had an interesting reputation in politics and the media. She faced extreme levels of criticism and abuse. 
When promoting the release of a new book in 2019 at South Bank, Clinton said, I do think there is a reaction to a lot of the success of women and the roles of women right now. And I think social media has lit that up in a very destructive and toxic way. People may have thought a lot of things in the past, but now it is amplified and it is viral. The media also contributed to the way that Hillary Clinton was presented. She was at fault for the actions of her husband, and though I strongly disagree with her denial that his affair with Lewinsky was not a quote, abuse of power, she still faced a lifetime of criticism for his misconduct. And in many ways, it made Clinton look weaker, or at least it made easier for people to dislike her. So much of this is tied up in the ways that we view women, the expectations we place on them, and the pressures we force them to live up to. It's an impossible standard. The rhetoric following her defeat in the 2016 election made it seem like she had failed girls and women across the country. Headlines that came out less than a year after, such as one from NBC News, Quote, 12 days that stunned a nation, how Hillary Clinton lost, contributed to the sense of overwhelming defeat. But there were still titles that seemed to appreciate some of the gains that had been made. For example, quote, did Clinton win more votes than any white man in history from December of 2016 by BBC News? Now, I am not American, and I was only 12 years old at the time of the election. But I remember it feeling really monumental. It was the first presidential election in the US that I was really aware of and invested in. And I really thought that Clinton would win. Of course, I'm not saying that the opinions of a 12 year old are necessarily going to predict anything or that they are going to change the outcome of such a large election. What is important though, is how the discourse around elections, whether in casual discussions or in the media altered. I distinctly remember hearing terms like echo chamber become more prominent. Journalists would discuss how echo chambers on social media contributed to post-election disappointment. The idea was that users had inadvertently created their own affirmative bubbles. Since social media would connect them with like-minded political individuals, they would believe that all of their followers reflected a much larger portion of society, when in reality, they were only affirming their own beliefs and hearing back what they wanted to hear. And one cannot forget the wave of allegations that hit social media giants like X, formerly Facebook, following the election and stories like those that involved Cambridge Analytica. But going back to the topic at hand, the cost of political failure, it is clear that Clinton can never really escape the shadow of the 2016 election. Just recently, she did an interview with Christian Amanpour about the upcoming 2024 election. Perhaps it is because none of us can really fathom the events of the past seven years, whether that is the result of the presidential elections that have occurred or the aftermath of the pandemic, but we keep returning to that fateful moment when Clinton lost. If political failure means completely removing yourself from politics, then Clinton has not failed. She is still in politics, 
just in a different role. But if we look at political failure as a disappointment of expectations, then maybe there is a different story to tell. The truth is that there is simply more collateral damage from her loss. Whether it was about losing the dream for a female president in the near future, the money that was spent on the election, or something else. In my opinion, Clinton was far from perfect, and she was involved in her fair share of controversial moments. However, it is undeniable that she faced a high emotional and reputational cost from losing the election. Unlike Trump, who hasn't been impeached more than once and involved in countless allegations, I think it's fair to say, she is not running for re-election. And I feel like that says it all. Male politicians get away with a lot more than their female counterparts. Trump has always been able to galvanize his base, and whilst his base is maybe not as strong as it used to be, that's a separate debate for a different day, and of course Clinton's supporters are still there, it is certainly a lot weaker than it was in 2016. Now, I could do a whole episode on Clinton, and I would love to do that, but in the interest of time, let us move on to our next female politician. Now, I think it would be a missed opportunity to not discuss the former president of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern. She made headlines across the world in April when she announced that she would be stepping down from her position. Her last speech in Parliament was moving, to say the least, and I think it painted quite a different picture of leadership than the one we are used to seeing. Ardern felt like she could no longer do as good of a job as she had done in the past. Now, I feel like some people were highly critical of her decision to resign, and I guess it sort of makes sense. How could she leave? She was pretty popular, at least in the media and with the international public. Why would she give up such an incredible position? In this instance, unlike the US election and Clinton, there is no political failure in the sense that anything was tangibly lost or not achieved, but some people did posit her resignation as a political failure in the sense that she could not hack the job. And I feel like that is not only a deeply unfair characterization, but one that is entirely untrue. Reading over her last speech with a bit of hindsight, well, as much as six months can afford, I was really struck by this one quote in particular. And it says, Politics has never been a tick list for me. It's always been about progress. Sometimes you can measure it, and sometimes you can't. And I feel like that really sums up so much of what has been happening in the world over the past two decades. Facing the crises of the last few years must have been nothing short of traumatic and turbulent for Ardern, and she says as much in her speech. And whilst it might seem right for politicians to keep on going and going, the truth is that burnout is making politics function less effectively. And I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had about the expectations and the standards that we place on politicians in general, but particularly on female politicians. And we don't treat them as human beings, we treat them as more robotic, as if they can just keep on going. And of course, a lot of politicians, you know, are not doing what they're supposed to do in office. But I think there is 
at least a few politicians across the world who are putting in the effort and who are trying their best. And I think it is also important to recognize, you know, not only where politics is not working for us as citizens, but also where structures and institutions are not serving the people in power and not allowing them to better serve us. I think so much of this is a bit of a reciprocal relationship, and I think it would be really important to explore how that affects politicians across the world. Just think of how much criticism Joe Biden receives for being much older than previous candidates, and the fact that he is still deciding to run for another presidential term. Or better yet, the fact that Westminster has seen several different prime ministers recently, all of whom made promises to the public that were not always seen through. Perhaps the self-awareness of Ardern is not a weakness, but a superpower. Her ability to candidly discuss mental health and advocate for a leadership that embraces emotions is nothing short of awe-inspiring. New Zealand might not be the most powerful nation on earth, but her decision to either do her best in office or let someone else try has established an important precedent. And I really hope that precedent will continue and that we will see its repercussions positively change international politics. I really hope that what she did is not a one-off event, but something that other politicians can follow suit in. Now, what's really interesting here is that at a similar time when everything came out, uh, with the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, we also had the former Prime Minister of Finland, well then Prime Minister of Finland, leave national politics. And I thought that was really interesting because she decided to go become a part of the Tony Blair Institute. And of course, again, every situation that we've discussed so far has obviously, you know, had its similarities but had also had its differences. And I think part of the reason was most likely the fact that the party she led in Finland, the Social Democrats, were defeated in the general election, and they ended up coming last. But I think it's also important to note that she faced unequal criticism on social media last year when videos were leaked of her dancing and having fun with her friends. And if you remember, there was an entire debate that ensued about the standards for politicians when it comes to partying and how much fun they're supposed to have and if it's right um, for a prime minister to be doing this. And I feel like some of this was connected to the stereotypes of what a good woman looks like and how she was supposedly being inappropriate or not doing what is expected of a prime minister. But again, if you think about other situations, and I'm not saying that either of these was correct, if you think about something like Partygate in the UK and the scale of that and the context of that, I think then maybe people were being way too hard on the former Prime Minister of Finland. Just like Ardern, she said in an interview that it was, quote, time to move on. And I find it fascinating that female politicians are becoming more willing to move on to the next stage of their career. Is this simply because women are more self-aware when their time has come to a close and they cannot give any more to political institutions or to the political system or to their party? Or, and this is something that's been kind of swirling around in my mind thinking about these women, is it because political institutions, media narratives, and aggressive criticism make it difficult 
and maybe sometimes even impossible for them to stay longer. Of course, you could argue that maybe each of their situations are unique, and they just happen to have similarities. One could argue that Clinton had a much longer and more turbulent career, so that obviously distinguishes her from what was happening in New Zealand or what was happening in Finland. Ardern needed to fill up her tank after the pandemic and numerous crises, whilst for Sana, it was a combination of the media and also the loss in the general election. All of these questions are important ones to ask. Unfortunately, I think answering them and finding a response remotely satisfying enough would take more time than we have today. But I really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode, and I hope it made you think a little bit more about the price of failure for female politicians, what failure even means and how it impacts their career. It has become clear to me that women in politics face a variety of obstacles. Whether it is being held up to impossible standards in their attitudes or personal lives, losing in general or presidential elections, or making time for their mental health whilst also being the best version of themselves that they can be. The price of failure can be high for female politicians, in so much as it affects their ability to continue being in the same position in the political arena. However, as Clinton, Ardern and Marin have proven, there are numerous ways to be involved within politics. And sometimes the most impactful steps you can take is to prioritize yourself in order to give back more to your community. Let me know what you thought of our discussion today and I wish you a lovely rest of the week and I can't wait to see you back for episode three.